This is 20 minutes of marketing and PR insights by SCA, the Space Communication Alliance. This podcast is produced by Spacewatch Global, your independent voice of space for SCA, the Space Communications Alliance. SCA is a dedicated network of leading specialists, independent PR and marketing, and communications agencies for the space sector. Together, we form an international and interdisciplinary team of experts who've been at the forefront of space and technology for decades. Tapping into this expertise and international network, this podcast provides bite-sized insights and views from some of the SCA's most influential members. We aim to bring you actionable marketing and PR best practice and excellence that you can apply to your business today. We're your hosts. I'm joined by a business development specialist, Annan Davis. And I'm joined by PR director, Roxanne Kingsman. We're both from B2B PR consultancy, Spreckly, based in London, and one of the founding members of the SCA. Hello, and thank you for joining us for our second episode. Today, we're joined by the very impressive Emma Gatti, currently the editor-in-chief of Spacewatch Global, who brings with her a truly fascinating communication story and journey. She's a Cambridge-educated scientist with the six years of experience working at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory and Caltech. As a researcher, she specialized in geochemistry and planetary sciences. She then went on and founded Mona Lisa Bites, a digital science magazine and science communication studio in her hometown of Milan, which is focused on changing the culture and the approach to science communication to the public. As a prolific science writer, she covers many subjects, and is particularly interested in space law, space crime, space economy, and everything connected with the geopolitics of space exploration. Welcome to the podcast, Emma. Hello, Roxanne. Hi, Anu. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you and be interviewed for once instead of being the interviewer. It's great to have you here. We're really excited for this recording session with you. So Emma, just to kick us off, obviously we've done an intro, but in your own words, we'd love to hear more about you and your experience and your work at Spacewatch Global as well. Yes. Uh, so where I come from, it's a long journey, long, long journey, a bit of sharp bends uh, a couple of times. So I'm originally a, a researcher. So I studied uh, geology during my undergraduate degrees in Milan. And then I moved to do geochemistry, which is a kind of branch of geology, of course, during my PhD. And my PhD was more on geochemistry of volcanic rocks. But then I wanted to do something different. I wanted to move to the States. I wanted to change, not really change the field, but I wanted to see if I could apply what I learned to something different. And that was the years 2012, um, which was uh, when Curiosity was sending a lot of data from Mars. So there was a lot of interest in understanding how to use the rocks of Mars to reconstruct uh, its climate history, its environmental history. And that's where they start to hire a lot of geologists and geochemists to help to reconstruct uh, the history of the planet. And this is how I shifted from geology to planetary science or planetary geology. So still geochemistry, but just applied to different type of rocks, in this case, the Martian rocks. And I stayed at JPL for... Five years, JPL Caltech, which are connected, and I did Mars, I studied the moon. It was always the same story, trying to find a technique to extract water from rocks that we cannot analyze in the lab. And I did five years of research, and after that, I was already starting to feel that I wanted to shift career. I didn't want to stay in academia. I was a bit, I think, fed up. <laughs> it's the best word to use it. It's a bit more nuanced than this, but for the for brevity, let's call it fed up. 
And I wanted to go into science outreach for the general public. And I didn't really know where to go. Didn't really have an idea. So I just did what I think everyone does when you don't have an idea. You go back home and you try to regather ideas and refocus and decide what you want to take your life. And I think it was a midlife crisis, a bit like 32, 33. It was a moment when I was like, okay, I need to decide whether I want to carry on or not. And I decided I wanted to change. So I came back to Milan in 2018. Milan is my hometown, is where I come from. Still without ideas, I start to work in school. So try to teach students about space and planetary sciences. I start to write as a freelance for Italian magazines. And I started to do some videos, some kind of like YouTube blogs, which were terrible. <laughs> were the worst video you will ever see on YouTube. Because the point that I felt I was not adding anything to the discourse, I was just kind of trying to simplify the scientific language and bring it to the general audience, but without a real idea where to take it, how to add something, how to actually find an engaging way. So it was just me appearing on videos and I felt this was not really my road because, I don't know, becoming a YouTuber was not my final goal. I wanted to find a way to approach scientific communication with a fresher approach. And I was also coming from NASA which had an incredible communication machine. So I saw the difference with Europe. So I was like, okay, how can I do that? Thinking about this, and this is when Mona Lisa kicks in, I start to think about idea how to bring science and art together. And I proposed the idea of trying to find a new method to communicate science to a group of artists um, and editorial artists. And we developed this idea of uh, a magazine, a digital magazine for science, but with a strong art component. And we won money for it. And this was 2019, was end of 2019. So it was the edge of COVID. So suddenly something that was very clear to me, a very clear problem that I knew it was existing, became a problem for everyone. How we can communicate science clearly to the general public. And so Mona Lisa had a huge success. Uh, it, It was a crowdfunding initiative. So we got more money than what we asked for. And I was the writer for this magazine, of course, because there was nobody else (laughs) that could do it. So I was the only one doing it. It was 2020 and it was the moment of perseverance landing on Mars. And I was like, okay, let's write an article about it, of course. And I got a bit bored of myself in writing another kind of simplified science article where I was going to explain about the science of Mars, I felt, okay, this is not really getting anything new on the plate. And I started to analyze the political angle. That was something interesting because there was China orbiting around Mars and there was the United Emirates. And that's where I got in contact with Spacewatch Global because they were the major European platform dealing with that. And so this is how I started to work with them, and this is why we're here today, I suppose. Our first question was actually focused on what led to my lease advice, but I feel like you've given us a really great introduction into Isnay's wants and also what it was aiming to achieve, which is fantastic. Perhaps, Anna, you want to pick up with the second question that we had in mind? Yeah, I mean, that actually leads us on really nicely to that question about, you know, you are a scientist by trade and, you know, that's kind of your background. How have you found that writing for kind of a slightly different audience, if you were, you know, going from your scientific writing to that is written for academics and scientists to a more mass market of people that are interested in science, but aren't scientists themselves? 
very good question. I know <laughs> I found it very difficult. So the transition is very hard. And I think this is a very important point that you're asking. Writing for the general public and writing for academia are two different planets. If you want to stay in this planetary metaphors, they're really two different languages. And one of the major mistakes that I think scientists do is thinking that this sh- scientists or researcher in general is that thinking that this shift is kind of immediate. Like if you know your subject, that you can explain your subject to everyone. Truth is that if you train yourself for decades to use a specific technical language that is addressed to your peers, changing completely your writing style to speak to a completely different audience is extremely complicated. It's literally a mind shift. You asking yourself different questions, you have in different targets, you have in different topics. So I found it very difficult. And now that I teach to PhD students and early career students how to do these transitions, I see from outside all the mistakes we make, all the uh, wrong perception that we have when we approach a piece for the external, for the external public. And one of the major issues that I found is uh, the fear the students have to simplify what they're writing because of the pressure to look good. So that's something that is uh, almost uh, at the back of the issue. That's so interesting, the pressure to look good. And presumably that pressure is, you know, looking good in front of the scientific community, isn't it? There's often, there can be a hierarchy there within the scientific world. I think it's a question that we had, actually. It kind of leads us onto that. Do you feel like there's a hierarchy in the science community between scientifics and academic professionals and other audiences as well? The hierarchy is definitely there. Like every place, I suppose there is a hierarchy within the scientific community and from the scientific community to the outside world. I definitely feel if there are two categories that feel this pressure more are the young students, the PhD students, they really feel a compelling need to impress. And because the perception is that the science category is a serious category that has to be taken seriously, impress me be very serious, very focused, very complicated. So when I approach students and when I say, try to, you know, not only simplify your language, and maybe we will go back to this question, to this, the matter of simplification later, but also try to engage a bit, to have fun with your topic, be more passionate. Everything that involves passion, empathy, simplification is an, is a no-no for them. It's like, it's all about be hardcore, serious scientists to impress the community. And another category that suffers this a lot are women. Like, because women feel that they have to be twice as impressive to make it, then they're even more rigid. So young women, PhD students, are the hardest one to bring out of their shell because they feel they really need to impress the community to be taken seriously. What taken seriously is them coin of exchange in science to be a good scientist scientific researcher very few scientists can afford to be light-hearted and not serious and still be taken seriously i think this is a problem within the community actually that's it's quite a shame isn't it and it makes me think about the most famous scientific figures we have in mainstream media that tend to be already very experienced so older (laughs) men who do a great job at reaching a wider audience but there is definitely a lack of female figures there and even more younger passionate female scientists 
which is a shame in many respects because you know what you see. So to have a lack of female figures that other young women can aspire to, it just seems like there's a big bridge to cross with that. And also in science in general, because there seems to be this conflict between needing to share the kind of research and progress that the scientific community is making. However, going back to your point about communications, the way those narratives are shared, there has to be a process of simplification to be comprehensive to the non-scientific community. So there seems to be this conflict between being seen as credible, the added pressure, especially of the younger people and young women. And yeah, they need to open up the doors to a bigger audience that aren't already plugged into all things science, academia. Absolutely. And when you say about the lack of role model, I think you're completely right. We all know these images of Einstein on the bike, having fun with the tongue sticking out. Or we know the images of Feynman having fun dressed up like a clown in the streets of Pasadena because he was part of the Caltech theater and he loved it. But this light-hearted approach to science is rarer and rarer, first of all, because science is becoming, like any other field, extremely competitive to stay in research. And second, no women are there. So young women researchers struggle to find a role model in this kind of light-hearted, passionate approach to science because there aren't any. So with that in mind, how can women in science ensure they have more of a voice? Very good question. (laughs) Well, being there, first of all, of course, it's part of the game. Being there, once you can finally be there, influence the table, the decision decision making process, then, of course, you can introduce your vision, introduce different style of approaches, of judgment. So being there and breaking the crystal, as it called the crystal wall, right? The crystal wall is part of it. And not being afraid of being ourselves. This is an important point because too often we finally, after decades of struggle, you finally sit at the decision table and you are afraid to push your inner core values because you've been so manipulated and transformed by what is fundamentally a men-only environment that you start to assume men-based values. And this is the loss for everyone, because once you're sitting on the decision table, you should not align with what they think. You should bring in your vision, and your vision should be dictated also from your values. And sometimes, and we know this, women come from a different part of history than men. So the best for everyone is to join the table and try to find a common shared vision that takes into account how we perceive science, how we perceive work, how we perceive the value chain, how we perceive or not perceive hierarchy. And that's what can be an enrichment. So I think presence and not being afraid of being different are my answers to this question. I love that. There's a level of like respect as well. If there are scientists from across the world from different backgrounds, different, you know, history, different stories coming together and trying to find that mutual ground, like you've said, the other persons that might be slightly different opinion should still be respected. Women should actually be feel confident enough to voice their opinions and still be respected in that community. Yeah, it's just a, it's very interesting. I agree with you. This is why a number and representation are so important because I don't know if yeah. you ever 
happen to you. But when you are alone in a round table of all men and these men are like twice your age, you feel very intimidating raising your hand yeah. and say, actually, I disagree with all of you. It's very difficult. Yeah. But if it's 50-50 or even 40-60 and the other women at the table, then you feel way more enforced in actually exposing your doubt to your different view. 100%, yeah. And it's not just the scientific community. We see it across the board. We see it across technology. We see it in marketing <laughs> as well. Yeah, it makes me think about the role of unconscious bias as well, because when you are a minority, um, you touch on this, and it's almost like you internalize that unconscious bias towards what is predominantly a male-based view. And especially in science in general, there is a real tangible impact. We talked before briefly about the impact in research being predominantly based on male data samples, especially within the medical field. So research done on men is is applied universally because there are far too many anomalies in female data samples to possibly consider. Whereas in reality, that's now been pushed more and more by more female scientists. So there's a real impact. And it impacts everyone beyond the scientific community. I think that's maybe a good example. But also going back to having more voices in the room. And then you mentioned even in marketing <laughs> campaigns that we see, I think, no one flagged that as an issue <laughs> before it got signed off. Was there women in the room or was there somebody else in the room apart from a very singular demographic? So it's not just about diversity for diversity's sake. There's a genuine impact. Absolutely. On a personal question, Emma, you've written a lot about science for different remits. What do you enjoy writing about the most? Well, when we speak about space, uh, I think there is a huge communication problem that space has, which is how we paint each other, how we paint ourselves. The, the general, let's say the general public, the mass, now perceives space as this kind of fancy tool for rich billionaires that they're building their own rockets to just spend an afternoon doing something different from the usual. And then they want to have their own rockets go to, do, to go to Mars when, when once Earth is just become a kind of like desert rock with nothing on it. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous because the perception then becomes of space like a useless resource that is stealing money from actual real research that could save life, that can save planet, that can save animals. So that's a very dangerous slope for us. What I like, what more than what I like is what I think it's important, where I can give my contribution is try to paint space with a different color, with a different brush, which means starting from what space can do for very human problems. Only yesterday I was looking on Instagram and there was this science article and they were discussing about earthquakes, about big earthquakes. And the opening line was like, GPS can sense the fault movement even few hours before the earthquake. So that's a practical application of how space can help communities to save from a major earthquake. The few hours in earthquakes language is a huge advance. So that's what I like to discuss. I like to discuss about issues where space can be relevant for our daily life, for our bigger challenges, struggles that we have in our Earth. I don't like to speak about those niche billionaire view. I don't like to speak only about money. I find it very trivial, very superficial, always speaking about 
big rockets, how much it cost, and who went to space this time among the little circle of Silicon Valley billionaires. I found it superficial, skewed towards a very small niche, like Silicon Valley billionaires, yeah. when there is the entire Earth that can benefit from space in a completely different way. Climate change is another example. Climate change is a massive issue. Space can help. Space has been helping because all the majority of time data that show increase in sea level, decrease in ice, all these problems, they're all coming from space. So that's what I like to write. It has to be, and this goes back to what Anum asked me in the beginning, it goes back to the storytelling. You cannot just approach it from, I'm going to tell you the story of a satellite producing data. Nobody cares about it. You have to make it engaging. You have to make it palatable. So it goes back to this kind of like crafting a storytelling where people can feel fulfilled. They are reading something that can be helpful for them and finding a nice story. Really good. And Emma, I think you being in this role you know, as part of Space Watch Global as well is hopefully adding to that female voice that we all need and that female perspective as well. And it's really refreshing to hear. We need more people like you in roles like yours. <laughs> I think space needs more people coming from different backgrounds in general. It needs more people not coming from the States or for Europe. It needs more women for sure. It needs more writers. It's more people from PR and marketing, for example, to understand certain things that we don't understand. It needs more global voices from Asia, from Africa. It needs more cultural. A lot of people coming to the space sector come from a similar upbringing. If all the engineers, all the people composing space, they come from a similar family background, parents coming from the space sector or being highly doctors or then again, we have a kind of like flat vision. We need people coming from different backgrounds also for that because they see space differently. I see space differently because I come from a different background. My family definitely doesn't align with the family of engineers. So I see space in a different way. Yeah, really interesting. So I think that's all the time we have for this episode. However, I think there's so many more interesting topics that we can dive into. And actually, we didn't talk a lot about the Space Watch Global and the trends that you're covering as well, which was another big kind of interest of ours to go through. But obviously, try to keep it at 20 minutes of marketing insights. We're going to have to split it into two episodes, which is absolutely fine. So what we'll do is tune in again for the next episode, which will be episode three, and we'll pick up this fabulous conversation with Emma then. Thank you, Anum. Thank you, Roxana. And I see you in the next episode then. Thank you. We'll see you in part two.